It's Tuesday, December 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. After filing for bankruptcy and closing more than 800 stores, Toys R Us is back with a new format and more surveillance. With two new stores in Texas and New Jersey, the new format lets kids play with toys before they buy. But what really caught people's attention were the new cameras embedded in the ceiling. Louise Matsakis, staff writer at Wired, joins us for how physical retailers are monitoring your every move in new ways. Next, the Supreme Court refused to hear a major case on homelessness and let's stand a ruling that protects the rights of homeless people to sleep on sidewalks or public spaces if no shelter is available. Critics say that this will cripple the ability of local governments to maintain the health and safety of their communities. David Savage, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more. Finally, with the impeachment vote in the House coming this week, the tribalization of politics will be almost complete. We've seen this play out in the process so far as Republicans and Democrats continue to support or oppose the president along party lines. Jerry Seib, executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about how divided the parties are. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We know shoppers absolutely love the Toys R Us brand, but um, success for us would be that uh, customers leave the store with a toy in hand, of course, but they have a really great experience in the store. Uh, we've really concentrated on curating the best brands, the hottest toys. Joining us now is Louise Matsakis, staff writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Louise. Thanks for having me. Toys R Us is back after filing for bankruptcy and closing more than 800 stores last year. They've reopened two new mall outposts. There's one in Texas and another one in New Jersey. Although the form of the store is taken on uh, slightly different from what it used to be. The, there's one in New Jersey. It's kind of this big experience play thing where kids can play with a lot of the popular toys, Legos and Nerf things and shoot the guns and just kind of have fun to try it out and see if they really do want them. But there's also another angle to this. They have a lot of cameras, a lot of sensors, and they're monitoring your every move, although they say they're not monitoring children. It's kind of hard to square that away. But Louise, tell us what form the new stores are taking, and then we'll get into this whole notion of the surveillance in there. So when I was a kid, Toys R Us was this really big box store where there were huge aisles and there were lots of toys from the bottom of the ground to the ceiling. So now these two new stores are kind of a new version of retail. So it's like this interactive marketing experience where there's maybe not as much stock as there used to be, but there's like place where, like you said, you can play with Legos, you can shoot Nerf guns. And in the ceiling, there are all these cameras, which you can talk about exactly what they're doing. You had a really good line about how it is, is Toys R Us stores are a prime example of the new reality of in real life shopping. They're trying to mimic all the data and everything that you can get when you shop online. Obviously, if you go to a page and you linger on a product or you click on a product and you're reading through it online, they can tell how long you're spending there, how much time you're really taking considering buying the object. In a retail store, you really don't have that. So all these new camera systems that they're installing at these two new Toys R Us stores are aimed at that, to try to figure out what you're doing in the store. So there are these cameras in the ceiling that are installed by a company called Retail Next. And what they do is they count the amount of people who come in and out of the store and they monitor how long they linger in front of each product. They're not super down to the exact item that you're holding. They're not quite that accurate. 
but they can see how long were you hanging out in front of Lego? How long were you hanging out in front of the Nerf display? You know, and they can compare those statistics to see which products people are really drawn to the most, exactly the same way that on a web page you might linger on one toy versus another. It's really part of this evolution where these retail companies who have physical stores are trying to mimic the same kind of tracking that has long been possible on the internet. With all these conversations about privacy, there's always these concerns, especially when there's children involved in this. Obviously, the kids are the ones that are running around playing with the toys, grabbing the toys off the shelf and giving it to mom and dad. What do they say about monitoring the kids? What Retail Next says is that they don't collect any data on children under 13, or at least they try not to. And they don't do that out of the goodness of their heart. They do that because one of the only national privacy laws that we have in the U.S., the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, actually protects children under 13 from having their data collected unless there is parental consent. So they actually have to do that for legal reasons. And there are two different ways that they exclude children. The first way with their more rudimentary sensors is that they exclude anyone under four feet tall, which is not great because when I was 10 years old, I was taller than four feet. Right. Uh, but their newer sensors actually use machine learning and they've looked at millions of pictures of kids and adults and they are trained to separate what a kid looks like from what an adult looks like. How well does that technology work? We don't know. But the good news is that these cameras inside the Toys R Us stores are intentionally designed to blur faces and it's pretty low resolution footage here. But there are other stores that are using cameras at eye level that are actually trying to assess your age, your gender, and those are not blurring your face. So I think that Toys R Us is kind of the tip of the iceberg of this new future of retail where there's cameras everywhere and they're mimicking the same kind of tracking that is kind of ubiquitous when you shop on a site like Amazon or other e-commerce sites. Beyond the cameras and beyond trying to track you that way, they really don't need a lot of that stuff. They're tracking you through Wi-Fi and Bluetooth using your cell phones. So if you enter a store and you have your phone on that mode looking for new Wi-Fi networks, they can actually detect your phone and they can pick up all sorts of information about you. So they can see maybe when you came to the store last, they might actually be able to identify you based on the unique number associated with your phone, not your phone number, but the unique device number. So there's all sorts of information they're collecting. And consumers say maybe that's a good thing because you might get pushed a digital coupon while you're literally walking around in the store. But I think there are also some privacy risks. For example, they can see how long you linger in each aisle. If you're lingering in the aisle for diapers, maybe they might infer that you're pregnant and show you a pregnancy coupon. You know, there are all sorts of kind of troubling implications of that kind of really detailed tracking. But what the companies say is, well, we're tracking you like this online. So why is it different when we're tracking you like that in person? But I think that people find that less intuitive and they're less aware that that's happening. Louise Matsakis, staff writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. The lower court judges said, oh, we're not saying you can't enforce laws against blocking the sidewalk, but there is a little uncertainty as to how far the cities can go. And there's some very big legal issues here. And the Supreme Court, in the end, didn't really clarify the law in any way. Joining us now is David Savage, reporter at the L.A. Times. Thanks for joining us, David. Glad to be with you. Homelessness is an issue that people are facing across the country Local governments are trying to get a handle on it. One of the interesting things that just happened, the Supreme Court on Monday said it would not hear a closely watched case on whether cities can make it a crime for homeless people to sleep outdoors. This is a case coming out of Boise, Idaho. And this has pretty big implications for states across the country who have 
large homeless populations. I think in Los Angeles, there's about 36,000 homeless people. And I know it's an issue with people sleeping on the streets and homeless encampments, as they're being called. So, David, tell us a little bit about what the Supreme Court decided to do and then the larger impacts on states across the country. The Supreme Court turned down the city's appeal of a ruling by the Ninth Circuit. So that decision stands. The Ninth Circuit sits in San Francisco, but its jurisdiction covers the entire West, nine states. And a year ago, they handed down what seemed like a pretty adventuresome ruling. They said it violates the Eighth Amendment, which is cruel and unusual punishment, to impose a criminal penalty on anyone who is sleeping on the sidewalk or camped out in the park in a city where there is no other available shelter. The Ninth Circuit took the view as, as, look, these people are being punished for something that they can't do anything about. They don't have a place to sleep. Therefore, you can't uh, punish them. A whole lot of cities in the West, and I think all around the country, were sort of taken aback by that because they're not going out and arresting and prosecuting people on the street. They do think that they can limit encampments or limit people from blocking the sidewalk or things like cooking with an open fire on the sidewalk. There are a lot of things that sort of go with living on the sidewalk. And the cities wanted to say, we've got some authority to restrict or limit what people do. This decision seemed to say, actually, no, you don't. It's unconstitutional to enforce such a law. The difficulty is the Ninth Circuit, having set a very broad rule, the Supreme Court has now refused to hear it, let us turn it down. And that leaves all the sort of lawyers a little bit puzzled because the court didn't explain their decision or their non-decision. It leaves this rule in place, but it's very unclear what this means for the future. I should say that I think this was probably a sort of a procedural technical problem, which was that in 2014, when this case from Boise was pending, the city announced that they would quit writing tickets or quit giving out fines. They basically said, we're not going to enforce these criminal laws. They helped to make the case go away. The Ninth Circuit said, we're going to rule on it anyway. I think from the Supreme Court's point of view, they were just went through a difficult situation two weeks ago where they had a gun rights case from New York. New York City had then repealed the ordinance. And during the oral argument, most of the justices said, how can we rule on this? There's no live dispute. They're not enforcing the ordinance. And my guess is, is that they decided that the Boise case was sort of flawed because on the one hand, the city was challenging a ruling that struck down their ordinances, but the city had already said they were not going to enforce any criminal sanctions against homeless people. So long story short, the Supreme Court punted on this. And so it's a little bit unclear what the law is. It says you can't punish them if there's no other shelter available, but that's a big question too. I mean, do you have to provide shelter for that many people? What if uh, the shelter is across town? It's not like readily available right here. So can you enforce these other things? And it, it does become a troublesome spot. There are places where some of these encampments are blocking whole sidewalks. You mentioned cooking with open flames in California. There are problems with wildfires. Sometimes these have been the cause of it. So these are big questions that now everybody's left to ask and answer. You ticked off the right set of questions that the city attorneys had. For example, the Ninth Circuit opinion said is if no alternative shelter is available. And they're very unclear. Well, what does that mean? And in a small city like Boise, 
it was only like one or two homeless shelters, so it was relatively easy to say, does that place have room for them or they don't? But in Los Angeles, there's said to be 36,000 people living on the street. The city has something like, I think, seven or 9,000 shelter spaces. And the city attorney is very unclear. It's supposed that people are camping out in Hollywood, and there is shelter available in Hollywood. Can they say, okay, you can't sleep here. You've got to go to the shelter. Or they, they can't do that because other parts of town don't have shelter. And so it's very unclear what alternative shelter means. Is that in the neighborhood or is that in the whole city? And the lower court judges said, oh, we're not saying you can't enforce laws against blocking the sidewalk, but there is a little uncertainty as to how far the cities can go. And so that's why this is sort of a difficult and frustrating case to talk about, because there's some very big legal issues here, and the Supreme Court, in the end, didn't really clarify the law in any way. David Savage, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Good to speak with you. I don't trust Shift. I don't trust Nadler to find the truth. And the speaker said it should be bipartisan, it should be prayerful, it should be thoughtful. So what happened? I like Nancy Pelosi as a person, but uh, this process has been hijacked. I think the most radical people in the country are driving the impeachment process. Joining us now is Jerry Seib, executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jerry. Happy to be with you. So the House is gearing up for an impeachment vote on Wednesday. It is expected that they will be impeaching President Donald Trump. Jerry, you just wrote an article kind of looking at the climate and saying that with this impeachment vote, the tribalization of politics will be almost complete. We saw this play out throughout the whole process. Democrats on one side, Republicans on the other side, nobody really budging in the middle at all or trying to come to some sort of understanding with each other. Jerry, tell us about this tribalization of politics. You know, what's happening really is the two parties have been sorting each other out ideologically, geographically, and in socioeconomic terms. There's been a great sorting out of the country, and Republicans now tend to represent districts and states that are very clearly conservative, that lie outside of the urban areas and exurban and rural and small town areas of the country, and places where traditional cultural norms prevail, many of them in the heartland of the country. Democrats increasingly represent more clearly liberal areas centered on the coastal urban states. And those are areas that are more diverse and have shifting cultural values. So this gap between the two parties has been growing for a while. It's both social and cultural, but it's also economic. What you have in Donald Trump is a president who kind of takes those divides and makes them sharper, bigger, more obvious. And that's no more true anywhere than on the impeachment question. And so you have a split of the country nearly right down the middle. You have a very small plurality favoring impeachment and a nearly similar percentage of the country at the polls are right opposing impeachment. And in Congress, you have complete division. There's almost no overlap. You had committee votes in the Intelligence Committee and the Judiciary Committee in the House are completely along partisan lines. That's likely to be true nearly so when the full House votes and it's probably going to be nearly true in the Senate as well. And so impeachment is an event that is just driving this sorting out to its logical conclusion. And in the Senate, we've already heard from senators, a number of them saying, well, of course, we're not going to remove the president from office. You've heard it from Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham. There is a couple of statements that you made in your article about expectations. They are expected to pull on their red and blue jerseys and go into the political arena to fight for their side. The expectation is reflected 
in opposition and support for the president. Talk about the expectations, because I don't think a lot of people vote for an individual congressman or senator with those expectations to fight for the team. We want them to do things that are good for the country. But this is where we're at now, where the expectation is, is, yeah, you're going to go along party lines and just support the team now. I actually disagree slightly. I think there is an expectation among an increasing number of voters in the bases of the two parties that that is what they're electing people to do. And if they don't, they intend to extract a price. So I don't think that's true of all voters by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the people who drive the political process, and this has always been true, are the activists who are the really intensely interested voters at the base of the parties. And now I think there is an expectation among those people that those they vote for will basically put on the Jersey and fight for the team. And if they don't, they will pay a price in the form of opposition in a party primary the next time they run for re-election. Where does that leave people in the middle or people that have dissenting views? We've seen a lot of Republicans basically quitting, saying they're not running for re-election anymore. We saw Democratic Representative Jeff Andrew. He's going to be switching over to the Republican side. Where do we see these people? I think they're under a lot of pressure. And those people are out there. There are people in the Democratic Party who are not yet convinced that impeachment is a good idea. But you had even today, several of them come out and land on the side of being in favor of impeachment. So they've kind of had to make a choice and they've chosen to stick with the team. And on the Republican Party, you just have had a thinning out of Trump critics. Obviously, John McCain passed away, but beyond him, Bob Corker of Tennessee, a senator, Jeff Flake, a senator from Arizona, were two prominent people willing to question the president in the first two years of his term. They simply quit the Senate, as you suggest, and they've been replaced, one by a more compliant Republican, the other by a Democrat. And so I think People find it harder to stay in the middle in this environment and harder to be counter trend within their own party. And most people just seem to kind of give up the ghost and go with the flow. And that's always been a little more true in the House than the Senate. But I think it's increasingly true in the Senate as well. President Trump has really changed the whole political system in this way. After impeachment, everybody is firmly on their sides. Do we ever go back? What does this really say for the future of both parties working together to pass legislations, to do things like that? Because every time something comes up, all you hear is how people are disagreeing with each other and really very little consensus. I think it's worth noting that it didn't actually start with Donald Trump. I mean, Barack Obama was a polarizing figure in a lot of ways as well. So you have the continuation of a trend line here, but it is more acute now. You know, we have in our Wall Street Journal NBC News poll found that 90 percent of Republicans say they approve of the job President Trump is doing and 6 percent of Democrats say they approve of the job President Trump is doing. There's almost no overlap between the two parties in views of President Trump. And that's way more extreme uh, polarization when it comes to the president than we've seen before. So it is worse now, is more acute now, but it didn't start now. And I don't know exactly what brings it together. I think you probably have to have either an individual leader who can kind of bring people together, or maybe you have to have enough voters who just grow weary of the exhaustion that this kind of polarization produces, who will actually vote for people who are willing to stand in the center of the political spectrum and plant a flag there and be rewarded for that in political terms. And right now, that's not really the risk-reward ratio that most politicians see. Jerry Seib, Executive Washington Editor at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be with you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.